Welcome to Middle East Policy Cast from the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Institute. Saudi Arabia. Few of America's friendly relationships carry such a mix of long-standing productive partnership and frustrating divergence as that between Washington and Riyadh. After four years in which Saudi progress on human rights, economic reform, and regional relations was mixed with reckless behavior in Yemen and toward dissidents at home and abroad, how should the Biden administration conduct the U.S. relationship with this important Middle East player? It is still dramatically in our interest that they succeed. This is not just because of the domestic change. This is also because Saudi Arabia made a decision that part of this change has to be to get out of the business of exporting extremism. So what we have is this dramatic positive set of changes domestically and internationally, precisely at a moment when we have a series of uh, what appear to many people to be a reckless and impulsive series of uh, of international and domestic changes as well. It's the role of the United States to try to maximize the former and minimize the latter so that we can have a better partnership, one that serves our common interests. That was Robert Satloff, who joins Erica Nagley today to discuss his presidential transition memo, co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross, on the future of U.S.-Saudi ties and how Washington can build a mature, balanced, and productive relationship. After this... This is Sarah Foyer, SORA Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. The 2018 murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi sparked a reckoning within American politics about the future of the U.S. relationship with the Saudi kingdom. Following requests from Congress, the Biden administration on February 26th released the unclassified U.S. intelligence report on the incident, condemning the crime and enacting what it called the Khashoggi ban, imposing visa restrictions on 76 individuals believed to have been engaged in threatening dissidents overseas, including but not limited to the Khashoggi killing. Further, the Biden administration has vowed to reassess the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia, adopting a posture informed by American interests and values alike. To discuss what that means, today we're joined by Dr. Robert Satloff, executive director of the Washington Institute and the Howard P. Berkowitz Chair in U.S. Middle East Policy. He's the author of the Transition Report, Defining a Mature, Balanced Relationship with Saudi Arabia, an Urgent Task for the Biden Administration, co-authored alongside Counselor Ambassador Dennis Ross. It's available now at WashingtonInstitute.org. Today is Tuesday, March 2nd. I'm Erica Nagley, press officer at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This is episode 76 of the Middle East Policy Cast. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do this, Erica. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. So in addition to being a subject matter expert in your own right, as the executive director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, you, you sure do have a lot on your plate, naturally. Why did you decide to write this piece on U.S.-Saudi relations? U.S.-Saudi relations have a unique role in American foreign policy. There are not many items in which Republicans and Democrats agree, um, at least politically, on Capitol Hill and in the broader policy debate. And they tend to agree on the need to rein in the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, upbraid him, extract a pound of flesh, 
and uh, and impose costs on his objectionable behavior. And I thought, along with uh, my colleague Dennis Ross, that this is a moment when it is important to step back, reevaluate the fundamentals of the U.S.-Saudi relationship, the important role that Saudi Arabia can and should play in advancing American interests in the region, and offer a little bit more detached, I'd like to think a little bit more sober, policy advice for the new administration. Saudi Arabia is is quite a, a complicated place, and, and U.S.-Saudi relationships are, are fraught with misconceptions and simplifications. And I'm wondering, do you think we could go through a few of them? Saudi Arabia is such a faraway place, and I don't just mean geographically. I mean, it is a country that historically has operated in a fundamentally different political ecosystem than anything we know here in America. I mean, to many Americans, it has a medieval governance, not just a monarchy, but an absolute monarchy. And the type of monarchy that chops off people's hands and executes all sorts of, of, of people for alleged offenses. I mean, this is, this is, um, uh, it, it, it harkens back centuries, not just decades. And then you have the, what, what is to many people, the obscene wealth of the ruling family. And when I say ruling family, it is indeed a family business. I mean, Saudi Arabia is one of the very few countries of the world whose name of the ruling family is in the name of the country itself. It is the Saudi Arabia, the country of the El Saud family. And so the connection between the family, the kingdom, the wealth of the kingdom, the, 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 the strange, I, I say, medieval way in which it has historically been governed, already put Saudi Arabia in a unique situation among um, um, friends and allies of the United States. Then we add another layer, the layer of uh, 9-11, and more generally, uh, the history of Saudi Arabia over the last 50 years of exporting a, um, a hateful, intolerant version of Islam. It imposed it domestically, but it exported it internationally. And for many people, uh, Saudi Arabia as a kingdom is responsible for the outrage of 9-11, not just the 15 in, of 19 hijackers who were themselves Saudi citizens. And indeed, in the Obama administration, the only congressional override of a presidential veto had to do with Saudi Arabia and Congress's desire to allow litigation to proceed against the kingdom of Saudi Arabia for its alleged um, uh, participation and role in the September 11th attacks. And so this is even before we get to the Donald Trump era, uh, uh, an administration which embraced Saudi Arabia precisely at a moment when, when, when the kingdom was undergoing its own series of dramatic changes. Dramatic changes, I'll say in a minute, that have a very positive side uh, domestically, but also dramatic changes which saw Saudi Arabia adopt a, a far more um, active, some would say impulsive, um, some would say reckless foreign policy. Uh, Yemen, 
uh, the Yemen war, the rift with Qatar, um, uh, holding the the uh, the Lebanese prime minister against his will, as well as domestic uh, events such as a crackdown on free speech advocates, women's rights advocates, um, a crackdown on corruption that seemed as much as anything as a shakedown on opponents of the new crown prince elevated by King Salman, the new crown prince Mohammed bin Salman. So this attracted special attention, what the Saudis were doing domestically and internationally, and the fact that the Trump administration embraced them uh, with a, a policy that 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 really was over the top in in uh, um, uh, not just overlooking any any uh, uh, suspect um, policies the Saudis were advocating, but saying so bluntly and cold-bloodedly that we are engaging with the Saudis so closely because they buy our weapons and they pay cash, which was essentially what President Trump's policy vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia was. And so you add all this together, the politics on Saudi Arabia um, began to move inexorably into a bipartisan, um, an increasingly bipartisan position where Democrats and more and more Republicans decided that this is one arena of foreign policy that needed change. Yemen attracted enormous attention because of the extreme humanitarian crisis that was occasioned by the the Yemen war um, in which the Saudis um, have played a major contributing factor. Um, uh, But it wasn't just Yemen. It was really the whole package and the, you know, the, uh, the icing on the cake as it were was the heinous killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, a, um, uh, an American permanent resident, a contributor to the Washington Post, who was um, uh, uh, evidently um, uh, murdered in the uh, Saudi consulate general in Istanbul by a team dispatched from Riyadh to capture or kill him. And then last week, the director of national intelligence following legislation passed last year released a declassified version of the report on this event, which um, identified uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia as culpable for this, um, for this killing. Um, Not because they have him on tape ordering it, but because it is the assessment of the uh, intelligence community that um, no such action could possibly have occurred without his direct uh, approval um, and uh, and support. Um, so this is the context in which we're now approaching um, this relationship um, uh, and where the Biden administration finds itself trying to balance all sorts of competing interests, uh, political, policy, strategic, allies in the region, and our partnership with Saudi Arabia. That's certainly a complicated picture, to say the least. And how do you think or do you think that that the U.S. has been in any way responsible for some of the behavior that we've seen out of Saudi Arabia that we don't like? And and how can we sort of steer the relationship in in a more productive direction? Well, the historic relationship of Saudi Arabia was driven by an understanding 
whereby the Saudis contributed to our common interests by maintaining a more or less stable oil market and supporting the United States in its global competition against strategic adversaries, be they Soviets and their local proxies um, or other radicals like um, Arab radicals like Nasser or Islamic extremists like the revolutionaries that took over in Iran. And one corollary of this bargain whereby we provided them with a security blanket and they did, you know, uh, moderation in the oil market or stability in the oil market and support for our competition against strategic adversaries was that we looked away at almost all aspects of their domestic governance, um, at the excesses, at uh, the human rights um, uh, uh, situation, at the very lagging role of women and women's rights, um, a whole long list of, of complaints that one would normally have. And so one could say that for years that our indifference, our purposeful indifference to the Saudi domestic political and social situation was a contributing factor in the, um, the very slow pace of change that we saw in Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, and, and in fact, the, the, um, what are to many people an egregious uh, political and human rights situation in the country. So one could say that we, you know, we, through our passivity, played a role in all this. I think that uh, a number of things have begun to change in the last few years. Um, one, of course, is greater American scrutiny of these issues. Um, and two is the effort by the Saudi leadership to, to, uh, uh, to transform itself, not out of any magnanimity, not as a favor to America or to the West, um, but because the Saudi leadership looked at the world, put its finger to the wind and realized that the, that the system that for the last century or so had provided wealth to lubricate the system of society, government, and politics that Saudi Arabia has enjoyed, that, that system based on fossil fuels is coming to an end. Now, it may not come to an end this year or next year or one decade or two decades, but it is coming to an end. And so wise leadership in Saudi Arabia finally came around to the conclusion that they need to change their ways. They need to produce something that the world cares about beyond fossil fuel driven energy. Otherwise, they will be left with nothing in the long run. And so that is the basic idea behind the National Transformation Project, Vision 2030, a vast uh, uh, program of change, which includes all sorts of things on the, on the social and economic levels, um, uh, including the recognition that the Saudi economy will forever be stunted unless it finds a way to take advantage of the talents of the half of its population that are female. And so a very uh, aggressive effort to, to, to um, endow women with, with um, rights, or take away restrictions on rights, and to find 
um, um, a useful place for them, not just in the education system, but in the uh, in the economy, in the employment um, and productive elements of the economy. So there's currently underway a dramatic transformation, um, faster than some want, slower than others, uneven in terms of this or that aspect of the economy, uh, this or that aspect of society. But it cannot be doubted that the country is moving in a very positive direction on all those issues having to do with social and economic reform. Not political reform. This is not to create a democracy. This is to provide a new basis and a more healthy, sustainable basis for the ruling family to continue to rule. We shouldn't have blinders on about this. Uh, this is not for them to become, you know, Luxembourg or Denmark. This is for them to become a 21st century absolute monarchy. <laughs> um, uh, even so, it is still dramatically in our interest that they succeed. This is not just because of the domestic change. This is also because Saudi Arabia made a decision that part of this change has to be to get out of the business of exporting extremism. And so it is now engaged in an effort to change totally its international profile on issues relating to um, uh, what had been its support for this hateful and tolerant version of Islam. And instead, to advocate for a much more inclusive, tolerant, engaging, hospitable Islam, open to dialogue and cooperation with people of all faiths and of none. And that is a major step in the right direction, something which the United States uh, strongly should endorse. So what we have is this dramatic, positive set of changes domestically and internationally, precisely at a moment when we have a series of uh, what appear to many people to be a reckless and impulsive series of, uh, of international and domestic changes as well. It's the role of the United States to try to maximize the former and minimize the latter so that we can have a better partnership, one that serves our common interests. The Biden administration, as you say, comes at this very critical time in Saudi Arabia. And there are a number of opportunities the U.S. has to advance its interests and values. Um, but then there are a number of, of challenges it, it faces as well. What should the U.S. aim to get out of the relationship with Saudi Arabia? And what sort of leverage, good or bad, does it have when it comes to sort of setting a new tone to the relationship? I think the first order of business is to do a serious assessment of where our interests align and what role Saudi Arabia plays in the advancement of American interests in the region. When one does this, one reaches the conclusion that there are very few interests the United States have that cannot be achieved, very few policy objectives that, that can be achieved without active Saudi cooperation and support. Uh, we can't effectively counter Iranian uh, misbehavior in the Middle East. We can't effectively 
stop nuclear proliferation in the region. We can't effectively expand the uh, the circle of Arab-Israel normalization. We can't um, we can't uh, effectively counter the ideology of radical Islamic extremism. We can't do any of these things unless Saudi Arabia is an effective partner with us. And so I think that's the first order of business. Then once we understand that, then we can begin to have a more serious conversation with Saudi Arabia about uh, the parameters of our partnership, what type of relationship we'd like to have, what our expectations are of them in terms of the boundaries of acceptable and unacceptable behavior, um, and where you know where we should reach an agreement that we don't have surprises in our relationship, that we don't wake up one morning to um, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, leading um, its fellow uh, Gulf Arab states in a rift against another GCC member state, that we don't wake up in the morning to a, a crackdown, uh, which is really a shakedown of hundreds of Saudi businessmen, um, including many with connections to American business, that we don't have a crackdown against women activists and human rights activists and free, free speech activists, but that we have an understanding about the ways in which the kingdom is going to go about its business of transformation. Um, if we reach that set of accommodation, that set of understanding, then we can have a healthier, more candid, I think more mutually satisfactory relationship with a kingdom that's still going to be very different from who we are, but one in which we can still work uh, cooperatively and productively together. If I may point out sort of the first two notes of this new tone set by the Biden administration were one, this announcement that they're looking to bring an end to the war in Yemen uh, with the facilitation of the UN and that it would cease selling offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia that that may be used in the war in Yemen. And then the second one was um, this release of the unclassified intelligence report on the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and the Khashoggi ban imposing visa restrictions on, on these 76 Saudi individuals um, who are believed to have been engaged in threatening dissidents overseas. Um, I'm wondering what what does that spell for the rest of, you know, the next four years with the Biden administration? Um, and and are they doing enough to sort of balance the demands from Congress versus the demands of of being a partner and an ally? So there are some very loud voices in Congress on both sides of the aisle, outside Congress, uh, people with uh, uh, very uh, powerful platforms who want us to have um, a much more assertive, assertive policy of, um, uh, of punitive measures against Saudi Arabia for Yemen, for Khashoggi, for human rights violations, for all manner of things. Um, uh, you just mentioned two steps that the administration has taken in its first few weeks. Um, but each of them, in fact, was balanced with a countervailing uh, measure. So 
on Yemen, the administration made a uh, declaration that it would uh, end all sales of offensive uh, military goods to Saudi Arabia while still committing itself um, firmly to assisting Saudi Arabia to protect its territorial integrity and to provide defensive goods uh, to, uh, to support um, Saudi military operations. So that was a very important statement that we remain committed to Saudi Arabia's defense and security. And uh, it was a um, it was meant to provide a very balanced view, difficult to implement, I should say, because uh, and we're seeing some of those difficulties already because the Saudis, of course, are um, not just involved in military operations in Yemen. They're involved in military operations in Yemen, A, to try to prevent the Yemenis from or the Houthis, to be more specific, from launching rocket attacks against Saudi civilian targets and to prevent the Houthis from registering a strategic victory by taking the city of Marib in Yemen, which would transform the Yemen conflict and hand a, um, a major success to the, to the Iranians, given that the Houthis are acting to a significant degree in concert with, uh, with Iran. So um, we're already beginning to see some of the complications even of this distinction between offensive and defensive. Uh, in fact, the same weaponry that the United States used evidently in, uh, in a defensive operation against um, Iranian targets in Syria after Iranian proxies um, uh, launched rockets against uh, uh, American targets in Iraq, those same weapons that we use defensively are being denied the Saudis um, uh, for their allegedly offensive use um, in, uh, in Yemen. Things get a little bit complicated. So that's the Yemen part where we have sought balance. On the, on the sanctions and Khashoggi part where we have, where the Biden administration also sought a measure of balance, uh, there were, there were calls, um, uh, very public calls by prominent, um, uh, uh senators, congressmen, uh, leaders of civil society in Washington, the, the publisher of the, um, of the Washington Post, for example, um, to have much more um, stringent punitive measures against the crown prince of Saudi Arabia for his role in the Khashoggi affair. And the Biden administration has so far withstood these pressures, saying that um, uh, uh, the measures that it has taken are appropriate and that it needs to recognize the larger strategic context. So here, I actually give the Biden administration high marks um, uh, for for fulfilling the president's campaign promise to to inject transparency and accountability um, into this relationship, while recognizing that the United States has vital strategic interests in the relationship with Saudi Arabia and taking uh, measures to preserve those. Um, will it be able to sustain this position under very loud and vociferous um, complaints by important elements of the Democratic Party and the larger human rights and democracy communities, for which I have great sympathy, I should say? We shall see. But I think so far the Biden administration has uh, um, been threading this needle um, with, um, with care and sensitivity uh, and uh, so far deserves uh, credit for being able to um, to do more than one thing at the same time. 
which is not an easy thing in foreign policy. But it recognizes that um, Saudi Arabia is a flawed partner, not a determined adversary. And you treat flawed partners differently than you treat determined adversaries. Absolutely. It's a, it's a very dexterous um, distinction to make. We are just a month or so into this new administration. This is an awful lot of early change in a key relationship. We don't really know yet how this is going to play out. We may think that the Biden administration is adopting a measured approach, given um, all the various uh, pushes and pulls on policy. People in Riyadh may view it differently. People in Iran may view this differently, may see this as a breach between America and a key local partner, and may try to take advantage of it. So, you know, there is a, uh, you know, there's a saying, you know, where, where you stand depends on where you sit. And so we have to try to evaluate not just where we are vis-a-vis Saudi Arabia, but how others will view this relationship, because it will have an impact. We're involved in multiple issues in the Middle East. So we have to figure out how this bilateral relationship will affect the, the overall competition we have with Iran. We have to assess how this will affect the effort to expand the arena of Arab-Israel peace and normalization. We have to assess how this will affect um, our ability to um, uh, bring together our Gulf allies in common cause to advance our collective interests. So we're very early in all this. So far, I give the Biden administration credit, as I said. Um, I think they've been handling this um, uh, you know, pretty judiciously. But let's come back in a few months and let's see whether um, uh, that same judiciousness, that same wisdom, that same sobriety uh, obtains um, further on. I, I look forward to that conversation in a couple of months. God knows where we'll be then. Okay. That was Dr. Robert Sadloff speaking with me, Erica Nagley. You can read his latest work on our website at WashingtonInstitute.org. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode from the Middle East PolicyCast. See you next time. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. And subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Please like and rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it to help others find Middle East PolicyCast. Cast.